you know, that's special to me. And he helped me get my start. And he was a shop teacher. So he had all summer off. Him and I would travel all over the country camping at KOAs and fishing our way across the West and then back East. And it was just, it just ingrained it in me that fly fishing was a part of me. I didn't need to plan around my life to go fish. It was planning the rest of my life around fishing. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, a look behind the scenes of the fly fishing world, featuring insight from guides and gear reps, conversation with resort managers, thoughts on entomology, discussions on fly patterns and destinations, and plenty of fish stories. Most importantly, it's an exploration of this lifelong journey we call fly fishing. Here is your host, Mark Hopley, with this episode of Fly Fishing 97. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Today we've got on the program Nick Delvecchio. Nick is from Wildwood Outfitters out of uh, Franklin, Pennsylvania. Hey Nick, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the program today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's start at the beginning. Okay, so we're going to talk, you got a lot going on in and around the state of Pennsylvania with your... uh, your outfitting, yep. uh, Wildwood Outfitters. Also, we're going to talk about some riding. We're going to talk about uh, all things fly fishing. But I kind of like to kick things off, uh, Nick. Where did things start in the world of fly fishing for you? Yeah, so I'm a native Pennsylvanian here in the Keystone State. And I started fly fishing when I was, oh, I don't know, four or five. My dad taught me. Probably in small minority that has actually never cast a spin rod. Wow. Uh, my dad actually taught me on fly fishing, and that was it for me. I never looked back. Um, and grew up in the tons of streams we have here in Pennsylvania. In fact, Pennsylvania has the second most miles of fishable trout water, second only to Alaska. Uh, so there was plenty of stuff to go around. And my days as a kid were in the mountains running around here trying to chase down some native brook trout. You know, you're the first person I've actually talked to, I think, ever, that has told me that they didn't start with a spinning rod in their hand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that uh, that puts me in the minority. On a lot of our guide trips, our folks, it's the only the natural progression that they come from spin fishing over to fly fishing. And they asked me about crossover techniques and if there's anything they can bring from spin fishing with them to fly fishing. And I have to sheepishly tell them that, you know, I'm not really sure because <laughs> I just I just don't know. I would look pretty ridiculous trying to cast a spin rod, I'm guessing. I think you still got to keep those lines tight, though. That's number one. Yep. Uh, I try to, I try to, you know, snake it till you make it and get through telling them, well, you know, keep the rod tip high, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that actually translated or not, but I hope they believe it. That's good stuff. Nick, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the area in which you're guiding, uh, you know, in Western and, and Central PA. So Pennsylvania, we're obviously an embarrassment of riches in the central part of the state. We have some famous Spring Creeks, one being named Spring Creek that Jimmy Carter, other presidents have fished. And then going up into the northern Appalachians, we have those freestone streams that are just loaded with native brook trout, pretty as you've ever seen. And then, of course, a little closer to where we're at in Franklin, we have some trout water here, some wild brown trout fishing. But then we're less than an hour away from Lake Erie, so we have those famous steelhead runs. And that's part of what makes it so unique where we're at is we have a little bit of everything. Within a couple hours, we can be catching steelhead or we can be catching you know, wild brown trout from some of the most famous waters in all of America. And it's sort of that, you know, uniqueness and diversity of fishing opportunities that makes it so special here. We can do anything at any time of year. And, you know, that's 
part of what makes it so great to live in Pennsylvania. Wow, that sounds pretty darn good to me. That's one thing that I, it's on my bucket list. Uh, it's fishing a spring creek. Never done it. It just looks amazing. Yeah, it's it's a it's something. It has its days where you say, you know, the heck with this. I'm going to go to the little plunge pools and catch more seven and eight inch brookies than I can count. Um, you know, it's pretty technical some days on the spring creek, but once you start tangling with some of those fish that live in there, you say, yeah, you know, now I understand why people do this and it's pretty fun. It's, it looks like a a pretty pure form of fishing and I would imagine some pretty tough fishing, some of those spring creeks. It can be. It's definitely challenging for beginners, especially in low flow conditions of summer. Um, you know, getting those narrow drifts through the weed bed channels can be challenging. It makes it a little easier with tight lining compared to indicator fishing, and especially if there's dry fly action going on, that's the best yet. Um, but yeah, it definitely has its moments where it's challenging, but as in a lot of things with fly fishing, that challenge makes the success all the more rewarding. Now, um, do you kind of venture into a little bit of eastern Ohio? We do, just the northeastern part of Ohio uh, for steelhead. Ohio is has an excellent program for their steelhead over there, and they have bountiful public land, which is something that Pennsylvania sometimes lacks. Mm-hmm. You never really know in Pennsylvania whether or not you're allowed to be in the areas you're, you're fishing. Um, it's just the way our water laws work and the way the public land works. But in Ohio, they have this metro park system where along a lot of their tributaries is just tons and tons of public land. So there's no question about whether or not, you know, you're going to be run off with a shotgun wherever you're fishing. It's a little more relaxed and, you know, some bigger water and some big fish and you can get away from the crowns and it's just kind of got it all over there. Sounds pretty good to me. Maybe you can speak to the kind of how you got into guiding to begin with, because I know you've done guiding elsewhere in the country, haven't you? Yeah, I got my start guiding actually in Colorado in Rocky Mountain National Park. It was my freshman year of college, so I was 19 years old, and I had gone to Rocky Mountain National Park and the little town there, Vestas Park, on family vacations growing up. And my dad and I had fished the area and sort of become familiar with it, so I said, hey, you know, I don't have anything else going on in the summer. So I just emailed a fly shop out there and said, do you have anything guiding? And they said, well, you know, we can't necessarily hire you on as a guide sight unseen, but come on out. You can work the shop and we'll see what happens. And so I packed up my truck with just a couple sets of clothes and my fishing gear and nothing else and took off out West 1500 miles from Pennsylvania and worked in the shop for about a week. And then I started guiding and before you know it, that's what I was doing for the next five summers. I'd head out there the day after the semester ended and come back the day before the semester started. And it worked out to be I was out west for about 100 days. And in those 100 days, I would guide roughly 125 to 130 trips. Wow. Um, well, I'd sort of, yeah, and it was it was go, go, go once we were out there. But it was awesome because I got to lead a lot of our backcountry trips into Rocky Mountain National Park and just see some beautiful country and you know, catch some amazing fish in there. And it was just, it got in my blood from there. Is there any better way to hone your craft than to just jump in like that, that, you know, like just immerse yourself in it? I don't think so, you know, cause it's starting out as a guide. It's, it's very much sink or swim because the guests that are there with you that day, they don't know that it's your first trip ever. And <laughs> you're there and it's a little nerve wracking. Then they're counting on you and 
you know, that time of year in Colorado, my first trip ever was at the, you know, the peak of runoff, which obviously poses some challenges for those that fish out west. So, you know, you're dealing with high water conditions and some guests that are counting on you to get them on fish. And it's, yeah, it's, you just got to jump in and sink or swim. And, you know, for a lot of guys, I think they, they figured out pretty quick whether or not they're going to be able to hack it or not. Right. So in the neck of the woods that you're in now, I would assume you're doing a lot of uh, fishing in and around kind of the tributaries that uh, flow into Lake Erie. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. That's where we do all of our steelhead trips. They There are some trout in there as well, but primarily steelhead. And then come May, right around Memorial Day, we actually have a pretty cool event where smallmouth bass will run into the tributaries from the lake. Hmm. They're a unique strain of smallmouth where they'll sometimes spawn in the tributaries, which is really kind of unique. And it's really exciting because we can run around in the tributaries and wet wade and catch two to three pound smallmouth. The best pound for pound fight you can have. And after spending the six months prior to that, freezing your butt off after steelhead, it's kind of nice to be up there in some wet wading gear and toss some poppers and streamers for those smallies. I'm curious in your heart of hearts, if you could pick one day, just, you know, you and a good buddy on the river or wherever, the lake, wherever you like to go fishing. What what does that look like in your mind, and what species are you targeting? I can, you know, the species, no doubt about it, brook trout. Mm. That's, they've got a special place in my heart being from Pennsylvania. They are state fish. They're some of the first fish that I caught on a fly, and it's kind of, it's kind of interesting to see the perception of brook trout. It's spending time in Colorado, they're often the scourge of biologists' existence because they outcompete with the native cutthroats. But here in Pennsylvania, where they are native, they're just so special. I mean, to catch those fish and say, wow, this fish can trace its ancestors back 10,000 years, you know, there's something pretty cool about that. And there's something pretty cool about catching those fish in those places. Well, and they make for such a beautiful um, photo op because they're just such, such pretty fish. Oh, they are. I mean, each one is so unique. They can be so similar, but so unique in their spots and in their colorations. And it's just, you know, they don't have to be big. It's okay. You know, it's the, the term trophy is all relative. And boy, you catch a 10-inch native brook trout from a place where they've been since the last ice age. And yeah, that's about as good as it gets for me. I hear you. So what are you casting for the, uh, you know, are, are you fishing a lot of dry flies for these brookies? Or what does that look like? Streamers? How, what are you using? A lot of the streams that we fish for the brookies are just really, really tiny streams, tiny little tributaries to maybe a stock stream, or maybe it's a wild brown trout fishery because the brook trout, you know, they are a little fragile. They can overpopulate and in a hurry, but anytime there's bigger browns and rainbows, whether stocked or wild around, they just, they just have a tough time competing. So often the streams are small, little plunge pools, not a lot of space to fish multiple flies. So in summer, we'll just fish something like a little Chernobyl or maybe a little Adams. I mean, it's far from technical, you know, and in the higher water of spring, maybe we'll throw that same dry fly, but down to a squirmy worm or a prince. It's polar opposite from fishing the technical spring creeks, that's for sure. When you're fishing these small waters for these brook trout, what's the cover like on on most of the streams that you're fishing? Is it fairly dense or have you got lots of kind of room to cast? There isn't a lot of room to cast, and that's probably the biggest challenge for those streams is we have tons of mountain laurel lining the banks, and that makes you become pretty proficient in the bow and arrow cast, but boy, 
if you're an angler that likes to really let the line out there and let it rip, that's you're in for a tough day. That's you can feel like the Incredible Hulk after a while in those streams. You just need to break free and just go out and cast 30 or 40, 50 feet just to kind of remember that you still can do it after barely seeing your fly line outside of the rod tip at the end of the day. What I love about that is it's really taking it back to the roots. You know what I mean? Getting back to kind of how fly fishing all started in my mind. Yeah, and I love that about it. It's I, you know, all the stuff with how technical the nymphing can be now with contact nymphing and, you know, no indicators and the Euro style rods. And that's all great. There's definitely a place for that. But there's just something that's so relaxing and so nice about bringing your seven foot three weight out to a tiny stream, putting on a size 16 atoms and knowing that you're just going to pound fish all day. That's, (laughs) it's just, there's something nice about the relaxing nature of that. It's almost like we make it too hard. You know, we want it to be this too scientific. It's, you know, it's, it's fishing at the end of the day. And those, you know, those brookies aren't being technical and it's just, it's great to go after them. Well said. We're chatting today with Nick Del Vecchio of Wildwood Outfitters outside of uh, Franklin, Pennsylvania. Nick, I'm curious kind of who's been the biggest influence in your fly fishing, kind of either maybe learning from or as a mentor. And you don't have to pick one person. Maybe there's a couple. Is, uh, does anybody come to mind? I'd say that there's been different influences at different stages of my life and for different reasons. You know, to start, obviously, my dad, the guy who got me into it. I still remember the first, you know, pen broomstick rod we bought at a garage sale when I was seven years old. I couldn't have been happier. You know, my first fly rod, looking back, it casted like a broomstick, but it's, you know, that's special to me. And he helped me get my start. And he was a shop teacher. So he had all summer off. Him and I would travel all over the country camping at KOAs and fishing our way across the West and then back East. And it was just, it just ingrained it in me that fly fishing was a part of me. I didn't need to plan around my life to go fish. It was planning the rest of my life around fishing. And that's what brought me here where I am today is that sort of upbringing. And that's, you know, relating fly fishing to everything I know about fun and how I wanted to spend my time and my passions and hobbies and everything that goes along with it. So I owe a lot of that to him, you know, and then once I started guiding, you know, you obviously get taken under the wing of some, older guides there and that's once they see that fire and that passion in a young guide they really help you out to learn the water to learn the ropes of the profession and it's just you know it's a tight-knit community and there are so many people that help you along the way that it's it's almost impossible just to name a couple Mm -hmm. fair enough I, i gotta ask you kind of an odd question but this keeps coming up what does this mean make sure the ring fits before you wear it fishing (laughs) <laughs> oh boy i said it's a good story there well yep yep <laughs> it is a good story so two summers ago my now wife and me we were on a trip out to colorado and we were visiting one of my guide buddies out there we were staying with him and his wife and my plan was i was going to propose to my then girlfriend um at joe wright reservoir which if anyone's familiar with the Colorado area, it's this high mountain lake about 10,000 feet up where there's grayling. Mm-hmm. And we were going up there because it's one of the few spots that has grayling, but that's where I was going to propose. So we go up there and I propose and she says, yes, and everything's great. And right after that, I said, boy, you know, I told her, I said, I, it's ring. It's, it seems like it's too big. 
And she said, oh, no, it's fine. You know, she's kind of razzing me. She says, do you know how knuckles work and all this stuff? I said, all right, fair enough. You know, <laughs> I guess it fits. So we continue on our little road trip. And then we head over to the White River on the western side of the state of Colorado. And we're fishing. And we fish a little ways and catch a couple fish and head back in the car. And I had just happened to look over. And I say, you know, Stephanie, it's my wife's name. I say, where's your ring? And she says, oh, my God. And she panics. And she spins the car around and we head back to the pool off and <laughs> she was just expecting to find it right there. And it wasn't there. So now we're staring at the white river and saying, well, the ring is somewhere there. Oh. And then at this point, one of us starts to cry. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I know who but, it was. <laughs> <laughs> yep. One of us starts to cry. Was it the guy that bought it? <laughs> It was the guy who didn't know that you're supposed to insure the ring before you give it to her. Oh. <laughs> but we we search and we search and we search and we're searching the banks and we're literally turning over rocks in the river trying to find this thing for three hours. And we had only fished a stretch maybe about 100 yards mm -hmm. and we just couldn't find it. So then she, she gave up and she went back to the car and I said, well, I'm going to go look one more time. And lo and behold, on that last little pass-through, I'm down on my hands and knees on the bank, and I find it sitting there. That's awesome. And it's just, um, yeah, it was just a miracle that I found it. And then I went back up, and I went down on one knee again, and she thought I was just being cheesy, and she was, one of us was still crying. And yeah, <laughs> all's well that ends well. But yes, I learned the hard way. Make sure the ring fits before you take it out on the river. Well, even if it did fit, I mean, you probably get your hand in cold water and then you know how that works. And it's, uh, yeah, it wouldn't take much at all. Wow. That's quite a story. And you know what, what are the odds on finding that? That's, that's crazy. I don't, not good, but yeah, that's, uh, we did some investigation cause she had caught a fish right off the bat and we took a picture of it and we looked at the picture and we could see that the ring was still on. So we were pulling out our investigative journalist hats there to try to figure it out. <laughs> I'm going to switch gears on you a little bit because I, I know you do a lot of writing and I kind of like to dig into that a little bit, Nick. Um, maybe you could tell us kind of um, the type of writing you're up to and, and maybe some of some of the publications you've been writing for. Yeah, interestingly enough, I got my first article published before I even launched Wildwood Outfitters. Wildwood Outfitters is a fairly new guide service having just started in July of last year. Um, but my first article that I got published in a national magazine was actually about brook trout and it was for the Drake and just kind of going back a little further. So I did my guiding in college, but I went to college to be a teacher and I spent two years teaching social studies here in Pennsylvania. And I just realized, you know, that that wasn't for me. You know, I just, I'd never had a day teaching like I did guiding where you, know, you just have that good feeling at the end of guiding, like, holy cow, you know, I just made some memories with these guests and it's just awesome and everything's great about it. So about the middle of the school year last year, I realized that I was going to try to make a go of this full time in the fly fishing industry. And I decided that not only was I going to have my own guide service, but I was going to try to do some writing. Mm. And I had heard from a bunch of people how it's a tough thing to crack into and it might take years and years before you get stuff published. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm sure that's true, but I'm going to give it a go anyway. And it's really taken off. The style of writing that I have is a little bit of everything, not a whole lot of fiction or humor, some, you know, some reporting like the buffering brook trout article for the Drake. 
is about a wild trout council that they had here in Pennsylvania a couple of years ago. And then another piece for the Drake was about a famous stream here called Penn's Creek and trying to protect some wild brown trout that are there. But then we also do some writing for the fly crates mm-hmm. and their blog. And we do all sorts of things there. We have some articles out about top fly fishing podcasts or maybe some New Year's resolutions for fly fishing and then some tips for people like how to do some productive winter fishing. So we're a little bit all over the board and just kind of depends on the season and the publication that we're writing for. If you were going to give some some tips to to maybe a a person that wants to do some writing in the fly fishing kind of genre, what would you tell them? I'd tell them stick with it. It's the most frustrating part about it is you pitch these article ideas to magazine after magazine. And I've probably sent out 150 ideas to magazines all over the world, really, that stick to fly fishing. And I've heard back from maybe 20 of them. Hmm. It's most times you just send out these article ideas and you'll just never, ever hear back. And that's just the nature of the beast. So anyone that wants to do it, just you kind of have to just dedicate yourself to it and stick with it and know that more often than not you're never going to hear back but that's okay because all you need to do is hear back one time i'm always curious nick from a writer's point of view so do you sit down and write an article or do you say hey i got a good idea for an article and then you say hey here's my idea i mean do you know what i mean do do you ever write the article before you submit it or is that just not done i do sometimes yeah it 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 really just all depends on the topic for example, I've, I wrote an article about um, acid mine drainage in Pennsylvania. I, my real passion is writing about conservation as it pertains to fly fishing in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my, my strong point, and that's my favorite stuff to write about. So if I see a story out there, I'll go after it and write it and then worry about pitching it to a publication after the fact. But if I maybe have an idea that's rolling around and I think it's good, but I'm not real sure, maybe I'll pitch it to a publication first. And then then if they say, well, yeah, sure, that sounds great. Let's see it. Then I'll go about writing it. But I normally have some outline or some sort of idea where I want to go with an article before I pitch it. That's interesting. I've I've always always wondered that, to be quite honest. I also noticed uh, as well that you donate a portion of every guide trip to preservation of public land and conservation of of wild trout which which i think is amazing that's something that's real important to us we partner up with two different organizations the wild trout we cover with trout unlimited and the public land we deal with backcountry hunters and anglers um yeah a portion of each guide trip goes to those two groups because honestly they do so much work for the hunting and fishing and just the outdoor community in general behind the scenes stuff that's you'd never even realize goes on all the battles they fight at the legislative level at both state federal whatever you name it it's just amazing the work that they do so that we can continue to do what we love to do and this is our little way of giving back to those groups and letting them know how much we appreciate all the thankless work that they are doing on the day-to-day basis i'm continually amazed by the amount of conservation efforts in Pennsylvania, like I had the I had the guys from Stroud uh, Freshwater Research on, and the fact that you even have a research facility like that in your state um, has got to be pretty special. We do an awful lot of work here in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, we have the most miles of acid mine drainage streams in the country, 
and reclaiming those streams is quite the process. It's, it's hard. It's expensive. In the 30-plus years that Trout Unlimited especially has spent trying to reclaim some of those streams, and we're talking streams that have been polluted primarily from abandoned mines, mm-hmm. um, we've only managed to reclaim about 35 miles, just fully reclaim them back to their former state. And that's spending tens of millions of dollars and decades of work. And by all accounts, Pennsylvania is leading the charge, kind of like you said, on the conservation. And it's just, it's a long load. But yeah, we're lucky that Pennsylvania and the groups that call Pennsylvania home are committed to seeing that through. Have you seen trout return to that section of river that you're just speaking about? Yeah, and that's really the amazing thing. One waterway in particular Um, is in the north-central part of the state. It's the Kettle Creek watershed, but there's a tributary to Kettle Creek named Two Mile Run. And Two Mile Run is the case study for acid mine drainage streams and their reclamation projects, mostly spearheaded by TU. But the pH levels were just insane in Two Mile Run. Part of it was polluted to the max with iron. Another part was polluted with aluminum so the ph was just all over the place and it was running bright bright orange i mean the brightest orange you could ever imagine Mm. and they got in there and they did all this work and started to divert some of the pollutants to these treatment facilities and it's after years and years and years now there's brook trout back there and that's really cool to see just in my lifetime i remember going up there as a kid and you drive over two mile run and see how bright orange it was and it was just an afterthought you say well that's a bummer because you can't fish that stream or anywhere downstream from that but now it's a viable brook trout fishery and to see that just in the span of a decade is just amazing it's it's amazing to see it and it makes you so hopeful for the future and each time you see one of those cases become a success it just drives hopefully just drives our entire angling community to continue the hard work and continue to donate and help out with groups like travel limited that's awesome that's very motivating and and like you say when when you see something go from as bad as you that sounded to as as pretty and as you know basically return it to how it was that that's got to be a lot of work a lot of time and i'm sure a lot of money it is. Um, I was, I've had a, I've been lucky enough that I've got to talk to a lady by the name of Amy Wolf. She works out of Lock Haven in Pennsylvania for Trout Unlimited, and she is the greatest asset Trout Unlimited could ever hope to have. She's an expert on all things acid mine drainage, and she, you just talk to her, and you can just feel the passion come out of her about this topic, and it just, it drives and motivates everyone who ever runs into her, but you know, she has done so much work personally just to try to make sure that those projects advance. And after talking to her, one of the interesting things that she told me was that they had trouble actually finding the abandoned mines in Pennsylvania. Because if you were just some random landowner, you could dig a hole and try to mine for coal, which is amazing. But Mm. that's what people would try to do. So they didn't even know where the sources of some of these pollutants were coming from. So one of the things that they did was they secured funding to have helicopters with this thermal detection go over the mountains of Pennsylvania in the wintertime when it was brutally cold, and they would look for hot spots 
And when they found those hotspots, they would mark them on the GPS, and then come spring, they would go investigate. And whenever they would find those abandoned mines, then they could work to fix it. But just the process of finding where the pollutants were, you know, were coming from was just such an ordeal and so expensive. Wow. It's amazing. It, it, the, the amount of work that goes behind the scenes um, always boggles my mind when I hear stories like that. But that's a, that's that makes a lot of sense. That'd be a smart way to find those spots. Yeah, I mean, it's creative. I, I don't know how they think of that stuff, but I'm happy that they do, and I'm happy that they're so successful in it. So let, let's get back a little bit to, to your home state. So um, fly fishing in and around western and central Pennsylvania. If somebody wants to book a trip, a guided trip down one of these beautiful rivers for brook trout, steelhead, um, you name it, how, how do they go about doing that? So our website, wildwoodoutfitterspa.com, we have all sorts of information about our guide trip and our guide service, what we offer. All the gear is provided on our trips. We try to make it as seamless and as easy as possible for our guests so that really the day of, all they either have to do is show up or plan a meeting point. And it's really great in the state of Pennsylvania in that we don't have to be licensed on specific waterways. We're licensed for the entire state. Hmm. So sometimes we'll have guests that say, hey, look, I have a camp, you know, in this little town and we fish this river, but I'd really like to learn it a little better. And I'd like to learn how to fly fish on it. So can we fish there? Sure. And then we can just turn around and fish a different river the next day. And then we can go for steelhead the day after that. And then maybe we can stick to some bass on the Allegheny River the day after that. So we're not limited by anything in Pennsylvania. We can tailor each individual trip to exactly what our guests want and what they hope to get out of it, whether that's just catch fish, whether that's just be secluded for the day, whether that's learn about the knot tying and the rigging up and the entomology and everything else so that they can then go do it on their own. Mm -hmm. We can do whatever our guests want, and that's part of what makes Wildwood Outfitters so unique, but also what makes it so fun is each trip is different for us as well. Right. Um, that makes a lot of sense, and, and that's not a that's not a common occurrence in most guiding locations uh, that I talk to. No, and it wasn't like that um, in my guiding experience in Colorado, and that's just not at the shop's fault. That's just the way the state of Colorado ran it. Was our shops were permitted on certain waterways, and that's what we had to stick to. One of the shops we didn't have a permit for national forests, so we couldn't guide anywhere on national forests. But Pennsylvania being so different really gives us all the options in the world, which is great because not only can we tailor it to our guests, but we can also tailor it to what's fishing best. We're not beholden to streams X, Y, and Z that maybe if they're blown out or they're not fishing well, then we're stuck. We can just adapt, we can change, and we can go to wherever the fish are biting and wherever the conditions are allowing for the best fishing. So a listener today wants to uh, look you up on Facebook and Instagram and maybe check out some of these beautiful spots and these beautiful fish. Um, what's your Instagram handle? Our Instagram handle is at Wildwood Outfitters PA. Okay. Same thing on Facebook. So we're pretty active on both. We post quite a bit on Facebook and Instagram. So there's, there's something for everybody on each, but we try not to overlap too much. So if someone follows everything that we offer, you know, they don't see the same picture of the same steelhead hmm. three or four different times. So we try to mix it up on each social media and our website and keep it fresh for everybody. That's always, that's a lot of work, and it's something that I, I don't fully understand is social media. It's something that's it's been a real learning curve for me, but... <laughs> um, 
I do have another question for you. I always like to ask my guests, and, and this is kind of a philosophical question, if you will. If you could change something about fly fishing, is, is there anything you'd like to see change in our sport? Something changed in the sport. I, I'll tell you, and I kind of touched on this earlier, I, I, don't, I don't love the trend that it seems like some folks think that you have to make it harder than it actually is. <laughs> I, I attribute some of it to my upbringing and where I grew up. I grew up in an old steel mill town just outside of Pittsburgh, and that's a very blue-collar, workman, salt-of-the-earth type of upbringing. And I just I try to take that and bring it to fly fishing, you know, I mean, we don't have to make it harder than it is. Can you catch fish and probably more fish your own nymphing and using jig hooks and all, you know, everything that's new and great because competitive fly fishers are doing it. Yes. Do I do some of it? Sure. But I'm, I wish we could change that the notion that sometimes you have to do that to be successful. You can go out with a box of half a dozen flies you know, three or four of which you don't even know the names of. You just tied them up at the vice 10 minutes earlier and you can go out and catch fish mm-hmm. and you don't need all the gear. You can keep it simple. You can keep it, you know, just very basic and still catch lots of fish and have great days out on the water. Yeah. I think as, as fly fishers, we do tend to overthink a lot of things. And I think I, I, I kind of blame the winter. Okay. So uh, where I'm at, it's pretty darn cold in the winter. So we're sitting here looking at the vice and trying to figure out ways to catch fish uh, from the office rather than actually from the river. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that, I'll, hand up, I'm guilty of it too. I, you know, I sometimes wish I could, you know, follow my own advice there because earlier this winter I was reorganizing the nymph box and, and realized I need, I needed one box solely for green Drake nymphs. <laughs> and I looked at that and said, boy, maybe I should reevaluate here because if I need an entire box, just dedicated to green drake nymphs maybe maybe it's time to scale back and simplify a little bit i think you might have just told us your go-to pattern yep (laughs) if anyone who's in pennsylvania the last couple weeks in may and the first week or two of june knows you got to go armed with the green drakes and it's worth it how much time do you spend at the uh at the time bench probably not as much as i should uh to be honest with you i I'm a big guy. I've got some big fingers and sometimes, boy, that doesn't, that, that makes for some awful frustrating times at the vice T- tying tails onto copper ribbed RS twos is a, is a challenging task for me sometimes, but I do tie some, um, I can tie a lot of the easy stuff, but boy, when it comes to those really intricate dry flies, it's, mm-hmm. it's hard not to look at some of the folks who can time and sell them for 80 cents and say, man, those are, those are good enough for the fish that they're for. What kind of, I'm just curious, what kind of a uh, fly tying vice you use? Um, do you have a preference on that? I use a Renzetti. Yeah. Um, to be honest with you, a lot of the fly tying stuff that I, I have was my dad's and it was passed down to me. Um, so I'm by no means tying with the latest and greatest of stuff, but you know, the Renzetti vice is timeless as it is useful. And it's it's always serving well. Yeah, well, for sure. I, that's what I've got too, and I, I yeah, I love it. It's amazing when you go from a an inexpensive vice that you you know to to a tool that maybe got full rotary. It just makes life so much easier. Yeah, absolutely, and that's 
boy, we see that all across the board with fly fishing. You find that new tool and it just, it just changes your life. So we got a new year now we're entering what, 20, 2019. What's this year look like for you, Nick? You see a lot of guiding, a lot of writing, a little bit of everything. How's it looking? Yeah, a little bit of everything. Hopefully we have quite a few trips on the books for the 2019 season already. The season doesn't seem like it's almost here as we're about to get 15 inches of snow in Pennsylvania this weekend. But yeah, it's going to be here before we know it. Uh, Our season goes year round. We've got some trips on the books for February and then just starts to roll on from there and doesn't stop until about August. And then it picks right back up again in the beginning of October for steelhead. So lots of trips on the books, lots of writing and Lots of fun stuff going on at Wildwood Outfitters. That's awesome. Hey, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time, and, and uh, let's do this again. Yeah, thank you for having me, and it was it was great to talk with you. That's Nick Delvecchio from Wildwood Outfitters, Franklin, Pennsylvania, fly fishing guide service throughout western central Pennsylvania, even venturing into eastern Ohio. Thanks for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or a topic you would like to hear on the show. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.